12.30? How the heck is it already 12.30? One minute, I was sitting down on the couch after dinner, opening my laptop to add that final, tiny touch to a project. The next minute, it's after midnight. The world is silent, and Netflix just auto-played like eight episodes of Scrubs in a row, none of which I saw. Okay, so confession time. Scrubs is actually my favorite show in the world. But before you switch to some other podcast, let me ask you. Why do people like us, people who care about our craft and aspire to do better work, why do we spend so much time on parts of a project that seems so incredibly small to others? Why do we enter these mental time warps? Where do we think they'll take us? That's on the show today. I'm Jay Akunza. This episode is supported by Right Side Shirts, an organization that turns children's artwork into apparel and accessories. So the way it works is that first, a student like Emma in the third grade submits a drawing she made in school, say, of a penguin wearing ice skates with one flipper tilted outward like he wants to hold your hand. Then Right Side turns that drawing into t-shirts and phone cases and watches you can buy, and all the profits help fund local art programs so that Emma and other students like her can keep drawing, keep tinkering, and keep learning the power of creativity. So, help fund school art programs, keep kids inspired, and help ensure the world gets way more penguin drawings? Go to rightsideshirts.org. So I'm a proud Italian-American, also known as an Italian-American. And it goes without saying that homemade food was among the best parts of living with my family growing up. Naturally, when I finally moved out of the house, there were lots of things I was going to miss about being there. Family, yeah. Dog, sure. My favorite hangout spots with friends, whatever, whatever. But nothing compared to the ache in my heart once I realized I'd no longer have a fridge magically stocked with delicious homemade Italian food. Now, luckily, my parents had trained me well. I'd have to do most of the work myself, but I could still cook most of the dishes that I ate growing up. And so, with a head full of steam and a belly full of one last homemade pasta dish, I moved to Boston from Connecticut. And once that belly grew hungry again, I started cooking up a storm by myself. Fettuccine Alfredo, eggplant parm, chicken marsala. I made it all, and I ate it all, and it was great. Except one dish. One dish I could never get quite right. One dish I failed over and over again to recreate the same exact taste that I knew from my childhood. And that dish, that most sacred of dishes, was the sauce, the gravy. Manja. When it came to making the sauce, I tried everything. Different tomatoes, different spices, different meats, garlic and onion, just one, just the other. Nothing seemed to work. It never tasted quite the same as I remembered it. And then I went home for a weekend. And as I walked up the door that Saturday morning and greeted my parents and got pounced on by the dog, I smelled something. Something amazing. Something miraculous. Something that haunted me and my budding culinary skills back up in Boston. Hey mom, I said, why are you cooking the sauce now? Isn't everybody coming over for dinner later? Yeah, she said, but you need those extra hours to make it taste just right. (sighs) Of course, that's it. I had been so 
close with all my own attempts, and all I was missing was a few more hours. It was that one little thing that, you know, Jay the Hungry Kid never would have noticed, but Jay the Cook had to care about. I'm sure you think about this all the time as a creator. If you could just spend a little bit extra time on that one additional thing, make that small and subtle tweak, your project would be so much better. And actually, better isn't the word that you'd probably use, right? Deep down, we think it's much more binary, much more objective than a range of quality. It's just like my mom said, it's not about making it better, it's about getting it right. Like we're this close to moving our project from completely and totally wrong to right, to correct, to what it's supposed to be. And of course, it wasn't an obvious thing that I was missing. It never is, right? If you tasted that sauce, you wouldn't ever guess the reason. It's not like you could say, oh, a little bit too much salt here. Or, hey, how about some more basil? It's like anything created to be consumed in any medium. It's rarely the obvious thing that makes or breaks it. So when a joke misses its mark, it's not because they forgot the punchline. It's the timing. It's that third to last word or the pause for effect. It's the same way in any of our creative projects. We're building something to be consumed by others in one seamless experience. We may think about and notice all those little pieces, but if we're successful, they never will. So across all our work, we'll often agonize over that one little thing so that the whole thing just clicks for the audience. Maybe we obsess over the very end of our article. It just doesn't feel emotional enough like this piece doesn't matter without that final punch at the end, and it has to be exactly right. Or maybe we'll stress over that rough cut in the video between scenes. She tells her joke right here, then comes the B-roll. Ah, that doesn't feel quite right. Let's try it again. Even this show, actually, especially this show, turns its creator, that's me, into a total madman, lost for tons of time in the forest of that one detail and I just can't find it. It's like I'm trying to desperately chase a crow through the trees. Nope, nope, that wasn't quite it. That was too soon. Let's try it again. Three, two. It's like trying to follow a crow flying through. No, it's not. It's like you gotta hit it right as I finish the word trees, but on the last letter of it, so it blends, you know what I mean? Okay, three, two, it's like trying to follow a crow flying through the trees. Right there. Yes. Awesome. Yes. <clears throat> Anyways, the point is, we'll spend tons of time trying to get that one little part right. We'll put that tiny bit of extra polish on something, hours upon hours, all to make something like 2% better. Because to us, that makes all the difference. But if you really think about it, to spend so much time on little details like that, that most see as so small, it's unthinkable. Welcome to Unthinkable, I'm Jay Akunzo. This is the show for craft-driven creators in the business world. Now, a couple weeks ago on the show, we explored why waiting for the muse to strike is actually an excuse not to ship your work. And we heard from the world-famous photographer and the founder of Creative Live, Chase Jarvis, who believes that real genius isn't about the muse at all. It's about doing stuff 
not just thinking about doing stuff or waiting around for some divine inspiration to strike. But when you do stuff, you can sometimes get sucked into doing it almost too much, all in the name of making it feel just right. And while deep down you might be saying to yourself, of course, yes, you you definitely want to do that. It's worth it. It's also worth stating the obvious question. Why do we act like that? Why put so much effort into the little things that only we might notice? Well, I think because when you're designing something or creating something or making something or building something, you know, what have you, um, you have to think about that. And I don't think that necessarily the end user is going to notice why they like something. But I think when you're putting it together, like it's your job to sort of to pay attention to those details. This is Nico Horovis. And together with his dad, he runs a pie factory. One more time, that's a factory which makes pies. So it's just like heaven, but it's in Connecticut. It's called Granny's Pie Factory. We're in East Hartford, Connecticut. We have a small uh, 4,600-some-odd-square-foot facility where uh, we manufacture 57 different kinds of fruit and cream pies from scratch. For the business, Nico has done pretty much every job there is to do. It's family business. They only have six people working there, so you kind of do whatever you got to do. Um, I've done everything when I started. The, for my first job there was uh, when I was like 12. I uh, was making shells on the shell. They have a machine that like sort of presses like presses the shell dough. Um, didn't like it as a 12-year-old boy, not really feeling the working life at that time. <laughs> He's done deliveries. He's worked almost every position in production. He even pinch hits for someone when they're sick. And now he's moved more into the office. Right now, basically, right now, what I've always been sort of mostly interested in and what I do now, because it seems to be the most important, is sort of like basically strategy, like broad strategy. And although he says he's all about the broader strategy right now, he still pours a ton of precious time and energy into the little things that others might not notice. I do believe strongly that the details of something are incredibly important because uh, people, I think people respond to those details, even though a lot of the times, a lot of times they don't necessarily know that they are responding to them or that they could even point out why they're responding to them. I think that they do. Take, for instance, their pie filling. I've been working on our uh, filling lately, our vanilla filling. We need some tweaking. The project started because we had uh, we have a uh, broker, and he went to uh, sell the sell the stuff, and we got some bad feedback. Right, so like I had not you know I've been eating these pies my entire life literally, so like I you know don't always notice these things. Right, so you get feedback back like that, you pay I pay attention you know as closely as possible. And so Nico called up a flavor salesman that he knew, and yes, that's a real thing, a thing nobody told me in school that I could be when I grew up. My flavor definitely would have been sour apple. Anyways, Nico called up his flavor salesman and got four vanillas to try. And uh, so what happens then is I go to the guy who makes the filling, and I'm like, Beto, his name's Beto. Beto, I need to test some filling. So, and he, he will make the vanilla, adding the vanilla is the last step. So Beto pulls out some filling. Basically, it's like some hot, mostly bland goo. And I did four at once, and I just did four different trials, and I tasted them, and I was like, I like this one the best. And he was about to pick one, but then he started thinking about it, and he said, you know what? I don't have a ton of vanilla experience. Let me call up that flavor salesman and get a few more samples. 
And so he did. And then he called another guy. And before long, he had 16 different types of vanilla flavors. It actually seems like a small amount to me, to be honest with you, like when I say it out loud. And each time I did like a trial, um, I would do basically the same thing. I'd take some sort of blank filling, so to speak. And I would add a different flavor and then we'd taste test it. So I'd get, I'd get, I'd ask pretty much everybody who worked in the factory and uh, the guy who originally brought us the feedback, our broker, you know, I asked him, uh, my dad. So everybody kind of, we all kind of talked about it and, and I actually ended up going with that one that I initially liked the best anyway. So, <laughs> but, um, wait, so if that was the case, why go through that whole process at all? Why agonize over four, then 16 different flavors? Because even though that I thought it was a good option, what we ended up using, I guess I didn't, it was not that perfect option. I wasn't like, you know, nailed it. You know what I mean? Some pie makers don't think about the details to this extreme. In fact, some work hard to actively cut them out of their process. Take the filling as the example. It's basically just milk and eggs thickened with starch. It's a pudding. But instead of making actual pudding, a lot of Nico's competitors just add tons of water, which is the cheapest ingredient possible. They'll also then add more sugar and more salt, also cheap. And then you're adding chemicals to make up for, to like sort of obscure the fact that you've done that, that you've cut corners. You know what I'm saying? And so when people go to the grocery store and they see like a 10 inch pie for like, you know, four bucks, right? That is not something that can be done uh, unless you're cutting corners somewhere or you're just like, I don't even, I don't think it'd be good. I don't think you can make a good pie and sell it at that price point. I felt obligated to ask him, why not make that cheap pie? Customers don't get a checklist of all the tireless work you put into something after all. And on top of that, Nico is running a family business that he has to keep afloat. I mean, big brands, they take all kinds of shortcuts, and the worst thing that happens to their companies if they miss their numbers is a reorg or maybe a dip in stock price or perhaps some layoffs. But if Granny's doesn't sell pies, the entire business could close up shop and everyone could lose their jobs, including Nico's entire family. Doesn't that sound worse than missing Wall Street's projections? Shouldn't it? So why doesn't Nico feel obligated to just nickel and dime everything in the way a large corporation would? Mm, I, I just don't, I just wouldn't respect myself if I did that. You know, that to me is not respectable behavior. That's like, uh, it's dishonest and like shady. And you're sort of playing on people's ignorance and their sort of baser instincts, you know, their desire to not spend much to be cheap and in order so you can generate wealth for yourself. You know, and I, you know, don't get me wrong, I would like to generate some wealth for myself, but I would also like to provide a product to, you know, to my customers that I can be proud of, that I'm happy with, that I think is a good product. At this point, he started getting pretty self-deprecating when he was talking to me. Like he's embarrassed to admit that he spends so much time testing so many variations of just one flavor. He starts diagnosing himself as weird and crazy, like he's trying to present himself in the context of what others assume a, quote, business professional is supposed to care about. But I could tell that none of those things are the real reasons behind his behavior. He doesn't actually think he's crazy or weird. He doesn't think he's some artisan that should act more like a business professional. I knew there was something more authentic underneath all of that. And I think he sensed my skepticism because he stopped himself halfway through the jokes. But why go to that level of detail when I don't necessarily have to? 
And I just can't help it. You know, I just believe strongly that though. Well, I just think it's important. You know, I think it's important. I believe in having a quality product for its own sake. And uh, from my point of view, uh, having a quality product is for me to do the best possible job that I can and create the best product that I can create. You know, because and I think I mean, on one level, that's economic in that, you know, I want to make money and I want to have a good product and I want to sell, you know, to sell a product. It needs to be good. Right. If you have people buy it a second time, it needs to be good. Right. But on another level, I think it's sort of it's a purely aesthetic motivation in that I find I, we could sell inferior product for cheaper. Right. Would we make more money? You know, I don't know if that's really I have no idea, but I'm just absolutely not interested in doing that for any at all. You know, that just doesn't interest me, you know. In fact, it's sort of like disgusting to me, um, you know, so I think it's kind of on, you know, you being the sort of global you to uh, create something that you think is interesting or that you think is is good, you know. And I think when you and I think when you're in the weeds doing it, you know, a lot of the details sort of get blown up to be a lot larger in your mind than they would be necessarily to someone who's just trying it for the first time. This type of attitude, according to Nico, causes you to forever try and improve your craft. You just want to create something that you think is good or beautiful or interesting just for its own sake, you know? I think, though, what separates, like, a good product for a bad pro- from a bad product or a product that uh, I, res- I would respect versus I wouldn't respect would be, uh, basically, was it made with the intent of with the intent of providing value right so is the intention of the person making it to provide a real value in someone's life or is it just to you know like sell something you know i mean which is like i said i have no problem i'm certainly a capitalist so i have no problem with selling stuff but uh i think there's a way to do it that creates value globally and a way to do it that sort of uh sucks value and while you might not ever in the words of nico nail it just by virtue of trying. But you can get closer. You know, you get closer and closer and closer. So say that you approach your craft just like Nico. You create with the intent to provide real value in someone's life, not just suck value. And you accept that the goal is to strive to nail it knowing full well you never will. When those two ideas collide, trying to add as much value as possible while also never getting it quite right, we're left with a scary question if you really think about it. When is our work actually done? I mean, if we're so willing to pour time and energy and effort and passion into those small details in the name of making something 2% better, you could then take that version and make that 2% better and then do that again, and again, and again. So how do we make sure that we avoid this like infinite loop? I don't know if this is how I should feel, but it is how I feel. Um, it's done when I'm not obsessing about it anymore. This is Michaela Vandermost, the founder of Newfangled Studios in Boston. They're a film shop that creates videos and movies for major brands and ad agencies. And maybe it doesn't mean that it couldn't have gotten better if I kept going, but as a creative, um, I'm sure you've stayed up all night thinking about something or, you, you know, you're thinking about it while you're brushing your teeth, you're thinking about it in the shower, you're talking about it at dinner. Um, when that fades away, it's done because more than likely I'm talking about something else now. Um, and it doesn't mean that I leave something in the middle. You know, it's done, it's shipped, it's moved on. But I think once that 
creative fire starts to sizzle on that particular project, it's done. Michaela says that at Newfangled, they experience this sort of chain reaction of creative obsession on a given project. And so as a creative director, it's always about the idea. And to be honest, sometimes I get way more excited about the bank and the pharmaceutical jobs because it is so much harder to make those interesting. Um, and you really have to dig deep and find a great analogy to make that interesting. So I become obsessed with that. How do I make this chip card on a credit card interesting? It's not. It's a chip card on a credit card. How do I make that interesting? And I, and I start to obsess about it. And then when I feel like I've kind of found an answer that works, it's almost like I passed the buck. You know what I mean? So now it's going to my live action team and they start to obsess about it for the reason that they obsess about it. So they might be obsessing about it because of the color or because of the pacing or because of the music or how do I put these two things together because we, I don't know, forgot to get this one shot and now it doesn't fit. You know, they obsess about it for their reason. And it goes through this pipeline of different people who are obsessing for different reasons. And in the meantime, I've probably moved on to the different thing to obsess about. This sounds nice in theory. I mean, I don't know about you, but the best, most fun, most fulfilling projects I've ever worked on definitely had these moments of creative obsession. And that's fine if the project lends itself to amazing stories. But sometimes the story might be something like, how does cloud computing work? And there's just not a lot of heart there, right? So how do you infuse heart into something that is sometimes sterile? Um, so on the motion graphics side, I think the heart really comes from... Um, the emotion of the illustrator and the animator on trying to make it so that it's an interesting story and trying to take something that maybe is a sterile topic and find some kind of analogy or find some kind of way to explain it that's actually clever and fun mm. and entertaining, a video that people actually want to watch. The key to their ability to create something that others actually want to watch, to find moments that they can obsess over creatively, it's all in how they handle deadlines with their clients. For example, they probe on why a certain deadline was given to them. Well, I think it's, it's fine to ask questions. So what is driving this deadline? Is it that five o'clock to you is the end of the day and you're actually not gonna look at it until nine o'clock tomorrow morning? Or is it someone is stepping on an airplane and has to have it in their hand, you know? Oh, that's interesting because the 5 p.m. thing, you were, basically what you're hinting at is like, well, if they're not gonna look at it until tomorrow morning, we actually don't have till 5 p.m. tonight. We have until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Right which hints at the fact that you guys are willing to put in the work beyond 5 p.m. Yes. Where everyone is out the door like a shot at your client, but you're still in the office tinkering yep. and improving it. Why would your team do that? You know, if you're paying them for ostensibly the quote day job, why would they stay past five to work on that project? It's not theirs, right? It's, it's part of theirs, but it's mostly the clients. Why are they going to stay that extra time? Well, I'll correct you in that I don't think that anyone here feels that the project is the clients. I think everybody feels ownership. And we wouldn't do it for every project. I, I probably shouldn't be going on public record saying that. We'll, go, we'll do it on a project where the client is treating us like a real partner. The client is letting us be creative and use those skills that we have to make the project as best it can be. Um, but if the project is totally watered down and lame and boring, yeah, everybody does just want to get out at 5 o'clock, and they will just ship it the way that it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it's, so if it sort of goes hand in hand with being a true partner, both us being a partner to the client and the client being a partner to us. If the client is treating us like true creatives and enabling that kind of um, atmosphere, you, you betcha that people will still be here at eight o'clock at night working on it because they're excited about it and they feel a passion toward it. Did you catch that? I just want to take a moment here. There was one word in there that I think is the key to all of this, the ability to feel that creative obsession 
and that pride in your work that lends itself to delivering actual value into the world. Atmosphere. I think that is what enables us to work so hard at the details, to do what others might deem unthinkable. It's about the environment. So I poked around a little bit to check out the environment at Newfangled Studios, and I talked to Corey Fanjoy, a designer and animator on the team. I think it's I think it's really has to do with the team and who you're working with. He says that it definitely helps that he works in a studio environment where the entire team is creative. That's the entire reason they exist. And this means that they can empower each person to more confidently focus on those little details for hours on end. Nobody bats an eye. Nobody thinks that's crazy. We work with in ourselves to kind of bring the best out of everybody. Like I know, I know if Harry's writing a script, if he can push it a little further and like, I want to see him do the best work he can do. And the same goes for the whole animation department. You know, we kind of, we kind of push each other because everyone's kind of on the same page there. We're kind of all enabling each other to do cool things and questioning how, how can we push this farther? How can we take this script and do something different with it to make it more creative? Or how can we add that extra step that might not impress like my mom or the people that might be watching the video, but will impress, you know, another studio that might see it. Like it's fun for us to kind of have, we always call it the secret sauce to like have a little something in there that we want other people to kind of figure out how, how did we pull that off? Because I love doing that with other people's work. So I asked Michaela what her role is in creating such an environment. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mother hen. These are my, this is my family that we've created and I have to protect them. And the environment that she's created for her team, that's been carefully cultivated. It has intent behind it. But this mother hen also has responsibilities away from the coop. Now, I'm sure you do too, right? You might work on projects across teams or externally with clients, or maybe you have to go on site to create a project like Newfangled often does. Michaela lives this, and she views it as her job to take that atmosphere from the office and bring it with her wherever she goes, regardless of location or people involved. But her actions actually might seem a bit counterintuitive to doing that. So, for example, during live action shooting, which is where real people are speaking or acting on camera, she just lets them go. She lets things unfold as they will. She doesn't over-engineer the environment. I let them kind of play it out like a scene, and maybe they don't even have any lines, or usually they don't have lines, but Mm. I say, okay, for the next half an hour, this is who you are, and you're in this situation, and I want you to really feel that and act that and go, and then I let my cameraman loose, and it's not, okay, this is the wide shot, cut, take two, this is the close-up, it's treat this like it's a documentary and like this is really happening, even though every single person here is an actor and the scene is lit and there are 20 people in Video Village watching. Um, And that's how we personally bring heart to it because when you're watching it, it feels real and it's shot in a way that it looks real. And so we just take, uh, we take a lot of cues from documentaries that tell really emotional stories and then try to take those lessons and apply them to Things that, you know, maybe you are trying to sell notebooks and pencils and pens, but how does that actually affect real people, right? So I I consider myself a creative person. I think that I'm good at what I do, but I don't think I'm the only person who's creative or the only person who's good at what I do. And so if you take a project and you think of it like a layer cake, if I'm the only layer, (laughs) you know, it's going to have a flatness about it. You know, I think that trusting you know, perhaps I'm the director or I'm the writer, but trusting my editor, trusting my lighting person, trusting my camera person, 
Um, and, you know, it's important to be a leader, but I don't think that leading means telling everybody exactly how to do something. I think it's, hey, here's, here's my vision and here's the pieces of the puzzle. I'm going to come back in a day and see the way you assembled the puzzle. And maybe you assembled it in a way that I wouldn't have thought of and is way better than what I would have thought of. Or, or the, you know, the combination of our two ways of thinking creates this third way of thinking that neither of us would have come up with. That's really important. So that's, that's how I avoid micromanaging is basically just hire people that you trust and admire. But she says that even with the right team and the right approach, you still sometimes do work that doesn't make you proud or fulfilled or better for having done it. Clients have strict deadlines. Bosses have strong opinions. Whatever the case, the reality is we can't always agonize over the project details the way we'd really like to. It's, we don't live in a fantasy world where I can just say, no, I'm you know, Scorsese and this is exactly how your corporate video needs to be. <laughs> you know, um, but what we do at Newfangled, and I think a lot of agencies do this, is the agency or the director's cut. The director's cut. Now, this is something that we can all get on board with. If you're new to the concept, here's the deal. There will be times where an agency or a studio has to deliver the work to the client and ship the project on deadline, and they weren't able to do every little creative thing that they had planned. But then they take some extra time and put in that little extra effort to bring it home in the way that they'd originally envisioned. So for example, at Newfangled, Michaela might share a deadline with the team of Thursday at noon. But then let's take the rest of the afternoon and do it anyway, so that one, we've, we feel like, okay, we have some creative closure on it. And then also, so that going forward, if we wanna show that project, we still feel proud of it. And we're not, we don't show something that is 70% of what we thought we could do. We show the 100% to the next client. Um, and I think a lot of it also just comes down to retention of good people. If, if I'm constantly shutting them down on what they think is better, they're going to move on because they're not going to feel creatively fulfilled. So um, saying, all right, let's close out this project, even though we've already delivered it and do this extra piece, uh, that's important. We did storyboards last week for a client and sometimes, and not to toot our own horn, but we will create three options for a client and be absolutely in love with all of them and wish we could produce them all. And the client picks one of them and we're very happy that they picked that one, but there's still the two others that, oh, I wish we could do that. So this happened last week, the client picked one of them. There was, a, there was a second concept that we just loved. And it also, part of the reason we loved it is because it was something we hadn't done before. And we thought, well, wouldn't that be cool for our demo reel? And also, wouldn't that be a great discovery process to, to learn this new skill that we haven't done before? Um, so this week, we have two team members who are working on the approved style and actually one of one of the guys in the graphics department is animating the completely unapproved board because we just felt connected to it and wanted to do it i talked to Corey about this idea too yeah well i feel like i all creatives can kind of relate to the fact that like at the end of the day even though your work is for a client you're really doing it for yourself too i personally every every job i i put out i want to each each project I want to be a step better than the one before. Well, there's, it's twofold, right? Like you can call it research and design. It's R&D. Okay, we haven't done this before. If it was something we'd done a million times, we just enjoy doing it. No, they wouldn't be working on it. It's like we've done that before. Um, but if it's this particular concept, we were kind of like, it's awesome. We made these incredible things in Photoshop and Cinema 4D. We don't exactly know how to pull it off, but it would be super cool to figure it out. This way, it gives, it gives us 
the freedom to figure it out on our own time without the pressure of a client deadline. Right, right. And then we can still take that concept to another project in the future, but now we know exactly how to do it. Plus, I get the added benefit of my creatives feeling creative satisfaction. Now, that sounds wonderful, especially if your boss encourages it, just like Michaela does. But not every boss or client or company or teammate or even daily schedule of ours, not everything and everyone around us actually cares about feeling creative satisfaction. They don't care about it themselves, and they don't care if we feel it. Corey had some really strong opinions when I asked him, who's responsible for that all-important creative environment around us? I feel like at the end of the day, that's you. I mean, I think I think you're the creative and you know what gets your gears turning and um, the things that make you think that sort of way and kind of get you in that mindset. I think it is absolutely up to you in a situation where it might be kind of suppressed by your employer. But I think if as long as you keep that positive attitude and you want to better your own work and keep doing it for yourself and do it for your portfolio, I think that's the way to kind of keep yourself going. Yeah, and I think that that's also where just sharing with the world via social media can come into play. Um, so there's been this phenomenon in my industry called dailies. Are you familiar with it? No, but go on. So dailies are where every day as, as a designer or a photographer or whatever your craft is, you create one extremely fast snapshot of something that's interesting to you. And typically where it comes from are projects that the client didn't let you go the way that you want it to go. So you made this incredible design and the client just watered it way down. Well, what you could do is take a snapshot of the one that didn't get approved and didn't get out there and, and call it your daily and you post it on Instagram. Um, and it's, it's this phenomenon that started with this guy, Beeple. And Beeple is, as far as I know, lucky enough to have a spouse who can provide financially and he does one creative still frame a day in, in 3D. And he posts it every day and for thousands of consecutive days now, he has posted a daily. And so that has caught on and caught the attention of a lot of creatives because it's something where you could just, instead of taking an hour lunch break, you could sit at your desk and mess around for an hour and say, hey, this is my hour. I'm going to just make a cool design and I'm going to post it on my Instagram and that's my daily. And it keeps you creatively jazzed. And it's also an outlet for work that hit the cutting room floor. Personal dailies, director's cuts, carefully cultivated creative environments. All of these things imply the need for a creative individual to protect themselves from outside forces, maybe under the watchful eye of a mother hen or a papa watchdog. But whoever the guardian, there seems to be this need that we have to shield ourselves from certain outside forces so that we can do our best work possible. Why? I think that sometimes you just feel frustrated because you're not ultimately in control because you're not the only person on the project and for reasons X, Y, and Z, it can't be the way that you want it. And when you become emotionally attached to a project, it can feel like emotional pain when it when the project doesn't go the way that you want it to. So I think the idea of not being able to make it 2% better, making you feel some kind of emotional agony is spot on because you just get frustrated and you wish that you could do that. And I think that's when it that's when it makes sense to go home and just do it yourself. And hey, sh show it to the brand later. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you want this or not, but I, I made another version that's like this. Um, or show it to your boss. And if you can't, take a screenshot and make it a daily. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. How much of this has to do with the fact that like you can't separate? I mentioned it earlier, like it, you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for a client and you, you challenge that, I think. And that was a smart comment because you are kind of doing this for yourself. Like how much of this agony and obsession comes from the idea that like, this is you, like 
if I gave the same assignment to seven different writers, even if I gave them the same headline and an outline, I would get seven distinctly unique articles back because you can't separate the person from the project. So mm-hmm. how, how much of that agony is it because it's like, this is, this is my thing, even though it's being done for someone else and paid for, like, this is me. Well, I think that, you know, going back as far as time, artists signed their work. Your name is literally on your work. And if you are continuing to be forced to put out work that you really don't want your name on, that can feel painful. Um, And so to spend that extra time, whether you're getting paid for it or not, to make it feel like it's worth putting your name on, it it brings a sense of pride to your work and it, it enables you to continue to feel good about what you do. And I can't tell, I can't give you a list of things that create those environments. I don't know, but it's a feeling and we're, we're creatives, we're emotional creatures. Um, and when you're working on a project with someone, whether it's, you know, a pharmaceutical company or a really awesome sporting goods company that, you know, one is a cool lifestyle brand and one maybe not so much, there's still a feeling about the project of the level of excitement. And it definitely comes back to, does the client respect that this is your craft? Are they treating you like an artisan? Um, and is there a back and forth where they're open and, and willing to hear your ideas or is it prescriptive? Here's our really boring brand, stay exactly within that and copy this other video that I sent you a link to. Because at the end of the day, you don't know why that movie made you feel the way that it made you feel. Um, but the creator is so ingrained in it that they kind of understand why. And so even though it might be a 90 minute film and you are agonizing over 60 seconds of it, that 60 seconds might be the difference between somebody feeling something and somebody not. The difference between somebody feeling something and somebody not. When we work in certain roles or for certain companies or with certain people, we can lose sight of this one simple truth behind our work. This is about feeling something. The most foundational, basic idea behind all we do as people who care deeply about our creative craft is to make somebody else feel. Even those basic, seemingly bland pieces, the how-to article, the listicle, the product case study, the instruction manual, It can all be created in such a way that others feel something. Now, maybe that something is sweeping and epic, like fired up, passionate, or awestruck. Or maybe it's something smaller and more specific, but still useful, like confident or smarter. That's what our work is about. It's about feeling stuff. It's about creating some kind of emotion in others and in ourselves, too. And so unless you can tell me exactly why you feel the way you feel when you watch a piece, which I'm imagining you can't, then you can't say whether that 2% extra effort that I put in made the difference for you or not. And if it makes the difference for me as the creative to feel that creative closure and to feel that sense of creative pride, then it's worth it. Although the rest of the world may think it's crazy, it's worth it. It's worth it to spend big amounts of time on little things. The things that our audience or the customer or the boss might not actually notice. Because we know that when they take it all in, that little difference actually makes all the difference. It's worth it to obsess, to agonize, to get really caught up in making today's project better than yesterday's. And it's worth it to consider not just the project or the job or the tools, but the entire environment around us if what we truly seek is a creative, prolific career. 
So as Corey and Michaela and Nico all helped us see, getting the right environment is on you. You can't just wait around for some internal political situation to shift. You have to go carve out time over breakfast or lunch or after the kids are in bed to do your daily. You can't rely on the client to simply allow you to do the version that you see so clearly, but they don't get. You have to go make your own director's cut. So that's my challenge for you this week. Identify one project that you're working on that you know might not end up exactly how you'd like and work to make it better. Do your director's cut. Maybe it's that blog post with a looming deadline or that video that your boss wants to showcase the product and the logo that you feel needs to be more focused on the story. Or maybe it's a podcast episode with two stuffy executives aimlessly talking that you think could use a little more post-production with some editing and some music and some humor. Sounds like a pretty good podcast. I'm not sure why I think that. Anyways, whatever the project is, pick one that you can sense landing in a less than fulfilling place and refuse to let it land there. Maybe it doesn't see the light of day, but that one is for you, for your creative closure, for your creative obsession. Agonize over making that one project just 2% better simply because it matters to you. And speaking of things that matter, let's talk about pies one last time. If you visit the Facebook page for Granny's Pie Factory, you'll see a picture of a t-shirt that Nico made. On the chest is a red silhouette of a pie with a star on either side. Above and below that image are two words written in all caps. Pie life. Not pie job, not pie nine to five, not pie, eh, it's a living. Pie life. To Nico, to Michaela, to Corey, to me, to you, this is about your life. It's about meaning. It's not just about creating. It's about creating well. It's not just about making a living. It's about living well, living fully. That's why we agonize over making something just 2% better. That's why the details matter. Because that's the entire point of all of this, this, this stuff that we do. And those existential notions, this idea of fulfillment and agony and obsession and celebration and meaning and living, as craft-driven creators, all of these giant things exist for us in the hundreds of tiny little details. And that's unthinkable. Unthinkable is written and hosted by me, Jay Kunzo, and this episode was produced by Chris Higgins and edited by Josh Cole. Theme music is by Tyler Litwin, Kingpin. Visit unthinkable.fm to subscribe to our newsletter. You'll get all the episodes as soon as they're live every Monday. Plus, I share exclusive snippets that don't make the final cut of each episode and other behind-the-scenes goodies. And let me know what you think of the show on Twitter. I'm at Jayakunzo. Or go behind the scenes of the making on Snapchat, the same name, Jay Kunzo. Special thanks to Right Side Shirts for supporting the show and helping kids fully realize their creative potential. Visit their online store at rightsideshirts.org 
to browse all kinds of shirt designs made by students and help fund local art programs with those profits. Once again, that's rightsideshirts.org. Next week, we're back with a look at somebody's creative side project. And this person left the greatest company on the planet to work for, all in the name of creative freedom. But she discovered that, well, maybe pursuing creative projects has a frightening dark side. Oh, great. Not like I needed to sleep tonight or anything. Thanks for writing that, me. Anyways, I better get back to obsessing over making that episode just 2% better for you guys. Thanks so much for listening to Unthinkable. I'll talk to you next week.